So up until this point in time, our class has seen different areas of the world that have possessed a successful economy. And we've seen that the prerequisites for these developed economies were a significant agricultural surplus, and that's going to result in what we've seen as being this highly specialized, and at least comparatively speaking so far, an urban society. And they're also going to have something of a relatively developed infrastructure that can involve canal systems, allowing for the facilitation of spreading agricultural produce and goods throughout the land. And these economies had more developed economic institutions that helped promote trade. So when I'm saying all this stuff, what's coming to mind for you? China, Western Europe, India, the Americas? And if you're thinking as I would be, you're probably thinking like, how could it not be China? But as I'm sure you're already aware, the Industrial Revolution is going to begin in Western Europe. So let's figure out why and let's figure out what the consequences of this are. So let us begin the key concept connections here with a focus on the causes of industrialization. Now, one of the most important factors leading to the Industrial Revolution, starting in Great Britain, is coal. Uh, this mineral is readily available, and it's available in great quantities throughout Britain. And it's also able to be transported throughout the land thanks to a highly developed network of canals that can send this coal into regions where there's going to be an abundance of available workers that are going to support the booming industrial development. These workers had become available thanks to the enclosure movement, which had taken away common land in the countryside, thus pushing small-scale farmers off their lands and into towns and cities in search of jobs. Coal now would become their primary fuel source, replacing wood and ultimately helping to drive industrial development through the production of iron and helping them to power the recently invented steam engine. Paired with an abundance of raw materials traveling across the Atlantic from their colonial territories, that allows for an influx of cheap cotton that can be turned into manufactured textiles, and all this helps us to understand why industrial development begins in Britain. And it's the cotton textile industry that's one of the first to experience dramatic growth because British consumers had become really fond of those Indian cottons that had been making their way into their markets during the 18th century. And the textile industry is going to undergo several transformations thanks to inventions like the spinning jenny, flying shuttle, and the power loom that all helped to speed up production. And no, I'm not gonna get into the explanation of what each of those things do, so don't worry too much about that. Check your book out for more info there. Um, but what really makes the difference in all of this is going to be the steam engine. And it's the steam engine because it's able to shift the energy source in factories from that of being water power prior to now steam power that's driven by the heat generated by firing coal. Do you see how all this comes together? This coal not only powers the textile industry, but it also helps to further generate iron and later steel production, and this is going to be the building block of industrialization. These goods are eventually going to travel by steamships and along railroads, and they're powered by, you guessed it, coal-powered 
steam engines. Now lastly, but also importantly, the protection of private and intellectual property also is going to help to incentivize these capitalists to take business risks in the hopes that their developments would not be stolen away by any kind of other enterprising entrepreneurs. So industrialization is going to spread. And soon enough, foreigners are visiting Great Britain to learn about the economic transformations that are taking place there in the hopes they can be replicated in their homelands. Early on, industrialization is going to make its way into Belgium, the United States, France, and eventually Germany by the middle of the 19th century. Coal was readily available in Belgium, as it was in Great Britain, and the United States also had easy access to the mineral as well, thanks to mines located in our home state here, Pennsylvania, and also in West Virginia. Uh, river systems in both areas allowed for the development of canal systems, and that's again going to help facilitate the transport of raw materials and finished goods throughout the nation. France is going to be a little bit slower to experience its Industrial Revolution, and that's due to French Revolution and its after effects, and they have relatively low populations in their urban areas, and of course that's going to be essential to driving industrial development. However, they're going to be able to recruit British laborers, and those laborers can help develop industry in their nation. By the middle of the 19th century, France is going to have more developed textile and iron industries. And Germany is going to be slow to industrialize due to the lack of any kind of national unity prior to 1871. But they had begun to develop an improved capacity to produce coal and iron by the middle of the 19th century, and soon enough, their railroad networks have begun to develop. But once Germany becomes unified, its priority is going to be to drive industrial development into helping their military and their navy expand their capabilities. And we'll see that start to pop up here throughout the course as time goes on for sure. So the vast abundance of raw materials drew both migration and investment into the shores of the United States during the 19th century. America is going to start to develop its own industrial revolution at the beginning of the 19th century thanks to the development of its textile industry, primarily in New England. By the end of that same century, industrial development had expanded to the coal and iron industries throughout the nation as well. And the factory system is going to be able to expand in America thanks to other developments. Eli Whitney cue your inevitable thoughts of the cotton gin, I'm not going there, folks. He developed a system of interchangeable parts, believe it or not, for the production of guns. And what this meant, he did do the cotton gin, of course, don't forget that, but that's not what I'm talking about right now. Anyway, what this interchangeable parts system meant was that workers only produced one part of the weapon, and each part could be put into any of the firearms being produced by that factory. So this meant that a skilled craftsman before needed to develop all of the parts of the gun, but now an unskilled laborer could produce one part over and over and over and over and over and over again. Now Henry Ford is going to run with this idea soon enough, and he's going to further develop it into the assembly line. Now work is organized in a manner where each laborer who specialized in a particular part is organized in a line, and each part was added in a particular order that when the end of the line was reached, the manufactured good was fully assembled. The development of the assembly line meant now that a car chassis that could be produced in an hour and a half, whereas before the assembly line, it would take longer than 12 hours. So these new businesses and these new factories require such machinery, technology, and levels of innovation 
that they become very expensive to operate. So this means that investing in businesses such as these are significant tasks that not really many entrepreneurs can take on. So some of these businesses, now known as corporations, they allow individuals to act collectively, and these corporations are recognized as a single body by the law. Corporations are able to grow so powerful, they're able to create monopolies where they could restrict competition in their markets by wielding their far superior power. So for, for my students who are a bit more familiar with U.S. history, your businesses like Standard Oil and U.S. Steel are going to become infamous in this regard. And we'll talk about some others as we get into the unit on imperialism. But for now, understand that workers are going to struggle under the weight of these large corporations, and eventually they're going to have to organize themselves in order to improve the quality of their lives. So moving on into industrial society now, we've got improvements in agriculture. And what that's going to mean, of course, as we've seen time and time again in this class, is that more food means a more easily secured commodity, means a rise in population. And this is going to happen primarily throughout Europe and the Americas. So as Europe's population grew, agricultural laborers are going to find themselves increasingly in the position of serving a surplus to the requirements, and they began to migrate into urban areas throughout the continent, or they even took the voyage across the Atlantic to the Americas. So the Americas saw the influx of tens of millions of Europeans during the 19th and early 20th centuries, first coming from Britain, thanks to the population pressures, later Germany, then Ireland due to its potato famine, and Scandinavia, and then the major final waves come from Eastern Europe where there's a heavy influx of Jews who are escaping anti-Semitic pogroms uh, being committed under Russian Tsar Alexander III's reign. And we also see Italians in search of income that can support themselves and their families back home. So these migrants are going to make their way into the urban areas of the East Coast and Midwest, and they're going to help provide America with its labor force that ultimately helps it to industrialize. Now, we're also going to see population centers expand in Britain as well, because innovations in agriculture mean that larger farms are becoming more sustainable with fewer workers. Medical advancements like vaccines for diseases such as smallpox are now coming into development, and higher birth rates mean that populations are surging. This is eventually going to slow as birth rates start to decline later in the 19th century. But as industry starts to boom, people are flocking to urban areas in search of work at a rate that saw one-fifth of Britain's total population being comprised of urban inhabitants around 1800. It then becomes, by the end of that century, three-fourths of the population living in cities. And this is going to have a detrimental effect on the quality of life in cities. Urban overcrowding comes as a result of this population boom, and it results in a whole range of issues. Rivers and streets are now polluted with human and industrial waste. Air is choked with smoke emanating from the factories of the cities. And workplaces and homes are going to be dangerous due to the lack of regulations, the haphazard construction to kind of compensate for the dramatic influx of population and the health and safety of its employees and the inhabitants of these cities are going to be compromised as well. So within this emerging industrial society, we're also going to see new classes emerge, primarily the rise of two new classes, the middle class and the industrial working class. 
these massive new corporations are going to require a staff of middle management, of some skilled laborers, perhaps, of accountants, other people who are going to bring a certain degree of expertise into their work. Not to mention, as the population expands, we always see new opportunities for other professions to emerge or grow. So fields like the practice of law, teaching, uh, small business owners start to grow and grow and grow. And we see this inform this new middle class. But new industries also require laborers to perform relatively low-skilled tasks, and these workers are going to be really easily replaceable as individuals. So this new industrial working class is going to be paid low wages, and they're going to be easily exploited again until we start to see them organize themselves later on in this time period. Family dynamics are going to shift during this time as well as a result of work being performed typically outside of the home. So you've got to understand what would kind of regulate family life, even daily life in terms of like the clock, so to speak, would be the agrarian cycle. But now we're on more of an industrial cycle, and that also means that less time is being spent together as a family unit. Due to low wages for many families of the working classes, their women and children have to seek employment outside of the home in order to bring home more pay for the family to maintain its expenses. So children find themselves working in textile factories and perhaps mines for hours on end, and this is an inescapable reality because there is an absolute need to obtain their wages to maintain the family's economic security. And women of the industrial class are working as well, and they're being paid less than men, and they're often having to work in spite of their status either as single or married. These women could also work as servants for middle-class families as well. And middle-class women, kind of on the other hand, are still going to be confined, though, in traditional roles, however. And this is going to be as homemakers primarily, and they're expected to serve as subordinates to their husbands, as we've seen. So we've seen some problems kind of emerging in this society, again, as I'm sure that you're aware. And this is going to lead to the rise of socialism and communism. So in observing these social and economic inequalities of the day, thinkers are going to start to emerge and they're going to advocate for societies that could promote economic equality between the classes. We've seen an advocacy for equality in this class really recently, but it was more of a political equality. It was more of an equality in terms of basic rights. And now we're seeing the advocacy for an economic equality. Um, and this is going to begin with utopian socialists, primarily. So you have this guy, Robert Owen, for instance, who develops a town that's built upon the cotton industry, but he, he sets it up as one that's defined by fair wages, reduced working hours, adequate housing, and education for the children of the community. But it's got to be emphasized. That's, that's the level it's at. It's at the community level. So utopian socialist communities are going to kind of fall by the wayside because it's small scale. And it's going to be replaced by larger socialist and communist movements as they begin to gather steam. So this takes us to maybe some people you've heard of before, maybe not, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, who are two German thinkers who articulate an ideology for what becomes known in the modern sense as Marxist communism. So in their famous work published in 1848 called The Communist Manifesto, they basically explain human history to be defined by one of class struggle. 
and they believe their contemporary struggle is between the working classes, who they call the proletariat, and the middle classes, defined by the capitalists above all else, who they term the bourgeoisie. And they argue that society is structured in a way that incentivizes capitalists, and it does so at the expense of the proletariat. Now, eventually, according to their argument, capitalism was going to fail, and this was going to take the form of lessened profits for capitalists, which, of course, then would really, truly affect the proletariat who were exploited by this system. According to Marx and Engels, this would result in a revolutionary overthrow of the capitalist system by the proletariat and the establishment eventually of what they called the dictatorship of the proletariat. Now, this is going to usher in first socialism, which is at first state-directed development towards a more equitable and just society, but eventually it would result in communism. That's an era defined by the abolition of private property, the state, and ultimately the flourishing of equality and justice. Now, it's going to be some time before these ideas in any way, shape, or form start to bear any kind of realistic fruit. So sit tight. Russia is going to start to collapse later on in this unit. We'll get there. And from there, you'll see the emergence of, let's call it the implementation of Marxist communism, which doesn't really end up looking like Marxist communism whatsoever. Now, during this time as well, we're going to see industrial workers start to collectively organize themselves in order to bargain as a unit with their employers. So this is going to be the emergence of our labor unions. First, this is being done in secret because it's considered illegal by both government above all else, of course, and business isn't exactly going to be fond of this. But both groups are opposed to it because they think that it poses a threat to trade. And workers are going to go on strike when their demands are not being met and violence would really ensue if management decided to bring in replacement workers. Eventually, these unions would succeed in bringing rights to workers, uh, things like a minimum wage and regulating limits on the hours to be worked and working to improve the conditions of various workplaces. Uh, labor unions are going to bring about those types of reforms. So in the spirit of talking about reforms, let's kind of shift our focus to that now. Um, the writings on the wall that industrial society has its flaws for a large percentage of the population, and Germany becomes the first state to begin to reform its industry, and I'll be honest, it's not out of the goodness of their hearts necessarily. What it's really being driven by is the fear of the working classes being wooed by socialism, because that could really result in a revolutionary transformation of society. So Germany and Otto von Bismarck are going to work to institute social reforms like providing insurance for unemployment, for workplace accidents, or even for sickness. Um, they're going to ensure that pensions are paid for people of an older age, and they're going to start to implement a minimum wage. And again, this is being directed by the state to keep the masses um, pacified, to keep them in support of what the government is doing and away from advocating for any kind of dramatic change. 
in England, we're going to see child labor start to become regulated by their government in the 1830s. Um, the Factory Act is going to be passed in 1833, and that's going to forbid children under the age of 11 from working. It's going to restrict the hours of work for children from ages 11 through 18. And by 1847, children are going to be limited to working a maximum of a 10-hour day. <laughs> Woohoo! Later on, children are going to be removed entirely, though, from the industrial sector. And we're even going to start to see a reform movement that's going to require children from ages 5 through 10 receive some type of a basic education starting in 1881. Cities are going to start to get their act together towards the end of the 19th century. We'll see sewage systems expanded. Building codes revised that are going to be established to ensure homes are not slapped together, not dangerous for their residents. Parks would be developed. The working classes are going to start to find themselves enjoying leisure time in ways they had not in the past. Um, it's no coincidence for my, my fans of, of European football or soccer that games occur on the weekend. Why? Because it's when people had off from work. Um, so we start to see the emergence. If you go back and you look at, I'm a big soccer fan. I haven't made that clear on this podcast. I can't believe that by now. My goodness. But if you look at the establishment of a lot of um, English soccer teams, we're talking the the late 19th century, the early 20th century, as as the industrial era is beginning to kind of, uh, let's say, straighten itself out a little bit and, and begin to afford people a much better life than what had been coming in the previous decades. But all that to say, emissions from factories are not yet being regulated, and the problems that are going to lead to our current issues with global warming are going to go unchecked. Now, the broader effects of industrialization. Uh, we've talked about it so far as a primarily Western development. However, it has global effects during this time, and we will really get into those in a lot more detail later episodes. But for right now, what you should understand is that the demand for raw materials is intensified due to population growth and the rise of manufacturing to satisfy growing global demand. Cotton is needed from India and Egypt, as well as the U.S. Rubber is needed from Congo. Palm oil is needed from various places throughout Africa. And tobacco and sugar was needed more than ever from the Americas. So these places that grow agricultural products for export receive very little investment, and they're going to be exploited for their resources. Now, in my mind, I ended up terming this to be a fourfold negative impact on these places. There's probably more than that, but I'll limit it to four. And I see those four negative impacts being limited industrial development for these lands, the exporting of their wealth abroad as it's being secured typically by foreign owners, we see an influx of Western manufactured goods that are cheaper than anything that their domestic industries could provide, and encroaching efforts to incorporate these foreign territories into larger and larger transoceanic empires. And we'll really get into that in our next episode on the Age of Imperialism. So for our complicating the narrative focus in this episode, I wanted to touch on one of the most contentious debates surrounding the Industrial Revolution, and that is answering why Great Britain was the first, something I posed to you at the start of this episode. 
And so the, to answer this question, I'm going to turn to an interview with historian Joel Mokier. Uh, it's published from the Washington Post back in October 2016, and it's titled Why the Industrial Revolution Didn't Happen in China. So you may have been wondering during this whole episode, you know, at the back of your mind, or maybe not, maybe I'm posing this for the first time to you right now, why doesn't China have a revolution in industry first? So I want to quote Mokir here. Uh, he, he's the author of a book called A Culture of Growth, The Origins of the Modern Economy. That's kind of his claim to economic historical fame. <laughs> yes, that's a thing. Uh, in my world, it is at least. Don't judge me. Here's his response to why Western Europe industrialized prior to China in the Washington Post. He says, quote, people have given different answers, and I'm giving mine. One way of thinking about it is culture. But the state, hey, the Chinese have a different culture because they were Confucianists and the Europeans were Christian. I don't buy that for a second. It's much more subtle and complicated. The way I would phrase it is that culture is not independent of political and institutional circumstances. China and Europe are different in many ways. But one that is after the Mongol conquest in the 12th century, China remains a unified empire run by a single Mandarin bureaucracy. There's nothing that competes with China or threatens China. China does get invaded by Manchu tribes in 1644, but they don't change the structure of the state. They learn to speak Chinese, dress like the Chinese, and eat like the Chinese. In Europe, no one ever succeeds in unifying it, and you have continuous competition. The French are worried about the English. The English are worried about the Spanish. The Spanish are worried about the Turks. That keeps everybody on their toes, which is something economists immediately recognize as the competitive model. To have progress, you want a system that is competitive, not one that is dominated by a single power. I think that is the major difference. It isn't just that China doesn't have an industrial revolution. It doesn't have a Galileo or a Newton or a Descartes, people who announced that everything people did before them was wrong. That's hard to do in any society, but it was easier to do in Europe than China. The reason precisely is because Europe was fragmented. And so when somebody says something was very novel and radical, if the government decides they are a heretic and threatens to prosecute them, they pack their suitcase and go across the border. Europe creates a competitive world that encourages intellectual innovation. There's the Reformation, which says the religion you had until now is wrong. The same happens in astronomy, chemistry, medicine, mathematics, and philosophy. Eventually, it filters down to how we make textiles and shoes and how we grow corn. I want to make clear, very few serious historians think China failed. China wanted stability and security, and they achieved that for a long time. The Europeans don't want stability. They want progress. Of course, China's stability gets disrupted by Europeans showing up with more powerful ships and guns. Eventually, China crumbles under the onslaught of European modernity. It's quite a tragic story. End quote. So he goes on to discuss the impact of what he coins as the quote-unquote industrial enlightenment, when Europeans believed it was important to understand our world for the explicit purpose of improving our lives. And he goes on to reemphasize that what makes this possible in Europe was a development in the willingness to evaluate classical knowledge with a critical eye and a desire to improve upon it. And he goes on to kind of still emphasize that spirit of competition between European states. Now, on the other hand, he says this about China's lack of industrialization. Quote, I believe the fundamental reason is China's position as a single empire and also its bureaucracy, which is a unique and peculiar animal. 
on the one hand, it's really progressive because it's a meritocracy. In Europe, the people who were in power were the sons and nephews of other people in power. But in China, there's an examination. And the people who did the best rose in the Mandarin civil service. So you'd think, wow, that's really progressive. Except if you look at what they were studying for these exams, they were simply regurgitating the classics. It was the perfect tool to keep reproducing from the same mold generation after generation, end quote. So he brings up an intriguing argument, and I really think it's good in a lot of ways. But I think, and if you paid attention to the first part of the episode, there's some things he's left out. The first of which is really simple. Coal. It's a fundamental building block of the industrial development. It is more conveniently accessible and readily available for mining in Britain than it was in China. Britain also protected private property, and this helps to incentivize the development of these new business ventures. Lastly, higher wages in Britain incentivize entrepreneurs on another level, and that is to develop new technologies that would ultimately result in paying less people and therefore less money to get stuff made. So that brings us to our document in focus section. And for this, I wanted to share a bit here and there about Frederick Engels' book, The Condition of the Working Class in England. So Engels, uh, he was born in Germany to a family that profited from industrial development. They, they were factory owners. However, Engels is going to take the, uh, the good old bad boy route. and He's going to become interested in the lives of the working classes, and he's going to be drawn to discussing the plight of the poor. So his parents, feeling like he needs to get a little taste of the industrial world so that he can kind of fit that mold and, and, and live that industrial middle-class life, he's going to be sent to Manchester, England by his parents in 1842, where he's going to help run a textile factory. But what he's really going to do there is devote his time to learning more about the slums of Manchester. So just in that little paragraph, if you're keeping sourcing score at home, I just established with you a little bit of info about Engels as the author. We contextualized uh, him and his world a little bit. And I think if it's not obvious to you, his purpose is going to be to expose Germans to the harsh injustices of industrial society. And don't forget, we know Engels as one of the two authors, along with Karl Marx, of the Communist Manifesto. So here's uh, some quotes from the excerpt that I share with some of my classes. Uh, I, I may interject here and there just to clarify a few things, so, so bear with me on that. So he says about the city of Manchester and what he's observing in the poorer neighborhoods, quote, right and left are a multitude of covered passages that lead from the main street into numerous courts. And he who turns in thither gets into a filth and disgusting grime the equal of which is not to be found, especially in the courts which lead down to the Irk, a river in Manchester, and which contain unqualifiedly the most horrible dwellings which I have yet beheld. In one of these courts stands directly at the entrance, at the end of the covered passage, a privy, that's a toilet, without a door, so dirty that the inhabitants can pass into and out of the court only by passing through foul pools of stagnant urine and excrement. Below it on the river, there are several tanneries, which fill the whole neighborhood with the stench of animal putrefaction. 
Below Ducey Bridge, the only entrance to the most of the houses is by means of a narrow, dirty stairs and over heaps of refuse and filth. The first court below Ducey Bridge, known as Allen's Court, was in such a state at the time of the cholera that the sanitary police ordered it evacuated, swept, and disinfected with chloride of lime. At the bottom flows, or rather stagnates, the Irk, a narrow, coal-black, foul-smelling stream, full of debris and refuse, which it deposits on the shallower right bank. In dry weather, a long string of the most disgusting, blackish-green slime pools are left standing on its bank, from the depths of which bubbles of miasmatic gas constantly arise and give forth a stench unendurable even on the bridge 40 or 50 feet above the surface of the stream. I'll just finish it by saying the last line of this excerpt, which he says, quote, Everything which here arouses horror and indignation is of recent origin, belongs to the industrial epoch. So Engels uses a lot of strong language in this source, and he does so to convince his readers of the ills that are brought on by capitalism and the industrialization that it's created. He wants his readers to, to see as best they can, to feel, and to really smell what he's experienced in a way that makes their stomachs turn in revulsion against these industrial developments. In short, he seeks to convince his readers of how awful this society is because he believes it's a communist revolution that can ultimately provide the remedy to all the problems that he's mentioned. To be clear, it's Karl Marx who would come to agree with Engels that these conditions would eventually result in revolutionary action. Quick recommendation for you as we wind this episode down today, and that is going to be for another podcast. Uh, it's called BBC In Our Time, which is a podcast series that has, I'd have to imagine, hundreds of different episodes on a whole range of topics. Uh, they do, I think, two or three episodes on the Industrial Revolution. I'm going to recommend the first episode of the Industrial Revolution, which they primarily tackle the causes. And... I feel like in my complicating the narrative section, I really only scratched the surface of why that narrative is complicated. This episode really brings out a good bit of debate between the guests on the panel, and it, it gets a little bit intense. So as much as you can have a, uh, a knockdown, drag out, intellectual, historical battle over the airwaves, I, I think you'll get it there. Um, it's it's definitely worth listening to, if not just for the interruptions and kind of the uh, the awkward tension that seems to loom in the air at times. Give it a listen. It's it's really good. It kind of gets into some of the complexities of, of what caused the Industrial Revolution in England, and I think it's worth your while. So I'm finished. That's it. That's all I've got for today. So until next time, I will talk to you folks soon. Take care. Everybody.